Welcome to the Rise Podcast. I am Nuna Isi Ma. If you are new to the podcast, this is where we explore how to transform trauma into sovereign power, soulful purpose, and sacred pleasure, so that you can have the success and fulfillment in all your life circles and be the woman you are born to be. Hello everybody and welcome. Today you are up for a real treat. I have here Dr. Steve Snyder. Dr. Snyder has an international reputation as one of today's most creative thinkers on sex and relationships. He has been a frequent guest on major media including NBC, T Today, Megyn Kelly and the Goop podcast and has been a regular contributor to Huffington Post, Psychology Today, and The Times of London. He has been featured in Elle, Vogue, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, AARP, Reader's Digest, Brides Magazine, and The New York Times, among many others. He's also the host of the podcast Relationship Doctor. Dr. Snyder's first book, Love Worth Making, How to Have Ridiculously Great Sex in a Long-Lasting Relationship, was the 2018 Book Awards Gold Winner for Relationship and Communication. Welcome, Dr. Snyder. Nunaisi, this is a pleasure. Thanks for having me. and I look forward to talking to your people. Oh, I'm so happy to have you on the summit as a leading voice of uh, sexuality. And I'm sure you will share with us today your well of wisdom. I'll tell you everything I know. (laughs) So you have been talking about emotions in making love and how they affect our lovemaking and healing process. Can you talk more about that? Sure, sure. Um, that was the big thing that I found was missing when I looked around. Uh, I've been one of the, uh, uh, on the committee that chooses the uh, Sex Therapy Book Award every year for about 10 years, and I've read just, just hundreds and hundreds of sex books and read books about having a threesome and books about how to tie your partner up and books about how to have a vibrator and books about how to have sex so it doesn't hurt and all sorts of stuff. But very few books talk about sexual feelings and exactly what does it feel like to be excited? What's the roadmap? What are you looking for? And so I got curious about this. You know, Masters and Johnson, I may be dating myself. Those who are, you know, a lot younger may not know them. They were the original sex researchers in the 1950s and 60s in America. And they looked at the physical aspects of sexual arousal and sexual response. They looked at blood flow and muscle tone and erections and lubrication and so forth. But nobody's ever really looked at the mental because the mental is all internal and it's all subjective. So what I decided to do many years ago was to start asking people what it felt like, what it really felt like. And, and they'd say, well, you know, it's hard to remember because it happened all of a sudden. And I'd say, no, 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 no not orgasms, not orgasms, because everybody's always focused on orgasm. You know, we I joke that we sex therapists are the only people who don't really care about orgasms. 
because um, to orgasm, it, you know, to a sex therapist, it's just like dessert at the end of a meal, you know, it's fine. Um, but what does it really feel like when you really feel in the moment? And after talking to people for decades and conducting lots of informal research, I decided there were three kinds of answers. The first was that people described feeling absorbed in the experience. That's the thing that's most challenging for many women because their minds are going this way and that and thinking about all sorts of things. And as a colleague of mine said, it's like a flock of birds. It's hard to get the flock of birds all flying in the same direction. But if you can get the old birds all flying in the same direction, this quality of absorption. You're in the moment. You're experiencing your senses, your feelings, and you're not really thinking about anything else. Most people find that very, very blissful, just to be on one thing. The second thing, and this is a little controversial, but I go out and say it anyway, is that sex is a little bit childish. It's a little bit childlike. Um, we don't usually have as much frustration tolerance when we're sexually aroused. We want to keep things very simple. We don't want anybody to bother us. We may be into our partner, but we don't really want to hear all about their day. We just want them to kind of make nice noises and tell, tell us we're wonderful. Um, and it's a very kind of childlike, selfish state of mind. Psychologically, um, we call it a regression. It's a regression to a simpler state of mind. I always joke that the sexual self is never more than two years old. And so uh, it goes down from there. Sometimes it's an infant. Sometimes it's about two years old. It doesn't get much higher than two years old. So we talked about attention or absorption. We talked about regression. And the final is validation. When a person feels very, very sexually aroused, they have a feeling of, yes, 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 that's, that's really where I live. Yeah, that's me. That's me. Yeah, everything else, forget it. This is really it. Um, by the way, that's why people who are um, uh, gay uh, can sometimes function okay with an opposite gender partner, but they'll say, yeah, everything worked. I got hard. I got wet. I had an orgasm and everything, but it didn't really just hit me where I live. Um, so there's a quality of, of good sexual arousal that has to do with hitting you where you live. So that was my culmination of decades of asking people about arousal is those three things, you know, really being absorbed, being regressed, childish, not so responsible, not so worried about everything else, and uh, feeling intensely validated. And so I use that as a roadmap for people in my office because, you know, otherwise it's hard to know what we're talking about when we're talking about sexual arousal. Are people really referring to the same thing? So that way we can get into the fine-grained detail. But if somebody's in a real big hurry, I always say, are you getting dumb and happy? Because really, if you could boil it down to its essentials, you know, regression, absorption, validation, you're talking about getting dumb and happy. So uh, that would be my answer to what do I mean by sexual emotions? Right. And does that make sense? Yeah, that, that does make sense. And when you say absorbed, do you mean to the higher form of connection? When you feel a connection mm -hmm. to yourself and to, and to your lover? Well, that's a very funky question, actually. Because uh, one of my pet theories about eroticism is it's a reawakening of emotions that go all the way back to infancy. And they have to do with being absorbed in the moment in an interaction which is emotional and physical at the same time. That characterizes interactions in infancy. Their emotions, they're, you know, they're emotional and physical. They are both selfish and connected at the same time. 
there's not this antithesis between those two. And they are pleasurable, but not uh, frivolously or uh, frolicsomely pleasurable. There's a seriousness to it. They're pleasurable, but they're serious at the same time. So you have these regressive feelings, which go all the way back to infancy, I think, and evoke the early mother-infant bonding with the eye-gazing, this pleasurable seriousness, this absorption to the exclusion of anything else. The original Two's Company and Three's a Crowd. You can't, you can't really imagine a mother and infant allowing a third person in. It's really just two people. And sex is the exact same thing. It's just two people ordinarily, unless you're kind of kinky and like that stuff. But for most of us, it's really just two people. So is it selfish? Is it, uh, is it uh, connection? I, the phrase I use is it's selfish connection. Um, and I'm a little biased about this because I'm a man. Because, you know, manhood and masculinity has gone through many iterations over the last century or so. hundred years ago, we had what I call masculinity 1.0 which is guys that didn't know what a clitoris was, and they just figured that women were just to kind of receive their seed and to uh, uh, give them pleasure. And then around the 1960s and 1970s, that started to change, and you got masculinity 2.0, which man definitely knows what a clitoris is, wants his woman to have an orgasm, wants to be a really good provider and so forth. Only problem is sometimes there's not much passion in it. So I always ask guys, um, when you touch your partner's body, are you touching it for your pleasure or for hers? And they always go, well, for hers, right? Isn't that what I'm supposed to be doing? And I go, no, 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 no. no. You're supposed to be selfishly connected. She wants you to know, she wants to know that you're involved with her body, but that you're there, that, that you're regressing too, that you're in the moment too. It's not just that you're taking care of her needs. So that may be a lot of extraneous stuff, but that would be my answer to the question of selfish connection. Now, for women, it's interesting because women tend to understand the idea of connection, but women, too, have a little trouble sometimes with the idea of selfish connection, with really letting go in a relationship or letting go during lovemaking. So uh, both genders, for different reasons, I think, sometimes have to keep in mind that it's okay. It's really okay. You can be a little selfish. And as a matter of fact, Selfish is where passion lives. I always ask people, you know, what would you prefer? A partner who is just the world's most wonderful partner at taking care of your every need or a partner who's so absorbed in being with you that they're just momentarily just lost in the experience. And almost everybody will take the second one. Right. Now, it's very interesting that you correlate the sexual experience to infancy and, the, and, and that time where we, A, came to the world wired for pleasure. So it's Absolutely, really and, for, and, for, and for attachment. Yes, and for attachment. Yeah. And uh, we also have that uh, element of curiosity, awe, and um, an openness to, to experience, right? Mm-hmm. I would say yes and no. Um, I think that uh, there is an openness to experience. However, there's also uh, a very conservative element to most very young children. They're not totally free as a breeze. They want to know who's mom, where is mom, 
where is she, and I want her to do everything that I want. Um, so they're very controlling. They're very, very narcissistic. They're extremely involved with their own needs. They don't really have a sense of other people as independent beings. Um, they get quite enraged when other people don't take care of their immediate needs. So they're quite, they're quite conservative. Um, they're not, uh, you know, they're not real hippy dippy. Um, and they want to know where's my food? Is it on time? <laughs> my nap? Is it on time? They kind of like routine ordinarily. They like a bedtime at the same time, and they like everything to be just, just as they like it. And I think that's important to to offer as a counterpoint because uh, there is something about uh, sexuality being regressive is that people do need a kind of consistency. Uh, they need both, really. They need exploration and they do need consistency. They need to know that the other person is, I would say, safe enough, reliable enough, and I would even be a little uh, uh, challenging about it and say they need to know that the other person is safe enough and reliable enough that one can be safely ruthless with them. Um, that one could really be passionate. Now that's a little bit of a trigger, unfortunately, if you've been uh, if you've been coerced or abused. Um, but there is something about feeling very very aroused where one does feel that one can essentially be ruthless with your partner, that your partner is okay. You can be like a wave washing against the shore. You don't have to worry about whether the shore is going to be able to take it. And ideally, that's what the young person feels with their mother. They feel that the, the mother can absorb their hunger, they can absorb their anger, they can absorb anything, that the mother's not going to be fragile, not going to be damaged. That's the main thing that people need with a partner is to know that the partner has a certain resilience. One doesn't have to be careful about them. One doesn't have to watch themselves with them. Now, is that making sense or is that too far afield? Yeah, it makes sense. Total sense, yes. And I want to ask you about sexual triggers because I know yeah. that that's a, a very a potent subject, especially for a, people that have experienced some sexual abuse. Yes. Talking to that? Sure. Um, I... One of my favorite authors on the subject is Wendy Maltz. Do you know her work? Yes, I do um, know her work. Yeah, so she wrote The Sexual Healing Journey. Right. And one of the things that she talks about is that unwanted sexuality, particularly early in life, um, really destroys your sense of the other person uh, being a, a competent holder for you and a competent uh, um, um, container. Uh, and protector for you, so that person is now turning to you for their needs, which you know you, you, obviously is a, is a terrible thing. Um, and there are three consequences. One is you tend to think that um, there's something wrong with you sexually. The second is you tend to think that there's something wrong with sex, that there's something bad about sex. And the third is you tend to be vulnerable to these intrusive automatic experiences where all of a sudden you're triggered and you're no longer in a state of pleasure and all of a sudden you're in a state of terror. So all those things together can make you feel that there's something bad there going on. Um, so did I answer that question? We could talk about triggers for a long, long time um, that get us started 
yes, and then what, uh, what can you do about it? What is your uh, suggestion? Well, when, I work with, when I work with clients in my office, I sometimes have them work through the book. Um, there are three chapters. Chapter five has to do with what you learned was wrong with you and learning that there really was nothing wrong with you and that even if you um, felt pleasure during the experience, it doesn't mean that you wanted it and it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you because it's a natural body response. And you, nothing wrong with you even if you had an orgasm. There's still nothing wrong with you. That's so fundamental for sex. You really almost can't have sex if you feel there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And the second thing is that there's nothing wrong with sex because if you've been abused, you get the idea that there's something bad about sex, that it's a way that people hurt each other. And I always like to make the analogy, sex is like a nuclear power. You know, it has tremendous potential for good and for bad. Um, but the main thing is you just want to use it safely. So you can make sure that, it, that you're using it safely with somebody with whom you feel safe. And under those circumstances, you have the feeling, okay, the power is there, and I understand the power, but uh, together we're going to keep it safe. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense, and it also hits home, because I have experienced an orgasm when I was nine years old by a stimulation of my clitoris uh, from my stepfather. Oh, sorry. And um, it took me years to understand that it was an orgasm. At the time, I didn't know. Sure. Uh, what Sometimes the first person has their first orgasm, they think there's something wrong with them. Maybe they're having a seizure or something. Yeah, I, I was just taken by these waves of convulsions. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's really had such a huge impact on me. And then it wired my own sexual um, orgasms for many years later with so much shame and uh, guilt and disgust. Yeah, I, had, yeah. I had to use uh, abusive fantasies to get aroused. And mm -hmm. yeah, it was a whole journey that I had to unwire. So I imagine there were a lot of memories contained in those abusive fantasies. Yeah, yeah. And it perpetuated that uh, cycle of, of abuse because it made me feel all those feelings that I was so familiar with. Mm -hmm. And then how did you finally escape? I've done a lot of somatic work to unwire um, those uh, connections. I really had to rewire uh, new pathways in my brain. And um, yeah, it's uh, awareness, bringing the awareness, uh, mm -hmm. being present in lovemaking. That was a big one. Yeah. We talked about earlier, uh, being absorbed in the moment feeling the connection to my body, um, tapping back into the love of my body and feeling my body as a, as a safe space. Yeah. You know, it was one of the things when I first saw Wendy Maltz's book, um, uh, you've probably had the experience, you look back at the, the back of the book and there are exercises um, which are illustrated of things that people can do. And some of the beginning exercises aren't sexual at all. For instance, there's one where you just put objects in a basket um, and you hold the basket and just take the object. One of the objects is an orange, maybe you just hold it against your face and you feel the texture. Um, and I never really understood that until I started talking to people from the trauma world where they're talking to me about somatic experiencing. We're just really locating the felt scent 
of really where you are in your body, and that that may not be a simple matter if a person's been really traumatized. And it may be extremely important before moving ahead. Obviously, it connects with people, what people call as mindfulness these days. But mindfulness really is also body awareness, and it's hugely important because so many people have these almost out-of-body experiences, and for them to just really feel embodied when they're going to do anything sexual. One of the things I talk about in my book is you really want to be guided by your emotions and not by your actions. So there's a scene in the book, it's in chapter two, where a woman comes to see me and she says, I don't feel anything during sex. And I say, well, you know, let's, let's talk about the, uh, you know, the aspects of feeling what you do feel when people are aroused. You know, do you feel absorbed? Uh, do you uh, feel a little regressed, a little silly, a little goofy? Um, do you feel validated? She goes, no, I don't feel any of that stuff. I said, well, do you feel any of that stuff any other time with your partner? Oh, she goes, yeah, yeah, all the time. I feel that all the time. Um, and it turns out she can feel it in the, in the living room, but she can't feel it in the bedroom because in the bedroom, he always wants to, you know, show he's a good lover and make her have an orgasm and that makes her feel bad and so forth. But in the living room, when they're not, they don't have their clothes off or anything, she can actually feel quite aroused. That's often very useful for people to register that they're having all those feelings. It's completely intact. The system is completely intact. And it can be experienced under certain conditions. And all you really want to do is enjoy it under those conditions and respect it. And then if you feel like it eventually, see if you can hold on to that feeling as you just enlarge the conditions a little bit. So, you know, you're sitting with your partner on the couch. Okay, well, can we keep that feeling going if we're horizontal? Hmm. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. Um, how can we do that? Um, we don't want to have, get involved with too many goals, but just say, well, you know, we're either ready to keep that feeling going when we're horizontal or we're not. And if we're not, we just honor it that that's where I am. You know, the old saying in psychotherapy is uh, there's only one way to get where you're going, and that's to be where you are. And you just say, that's where I am. You know, just like take it or leave it. <laughs> it's no, no, sense, no sense fussing about it. This is the other aspect of the sexual mind being like a small child. You know, you, you give a child a goal and it'll just cry. You know, people don't really like goals. The sexual mind doesn't like goals at all. I, I was, it always makes me cringe when people say, you know, work on your sexual relationship. I go, Ugh, why would anybody want to do that? You know, children don't even do what work is. You know, they just want to eat ice cream and wear funny hats and everybody go, yay. You know, so that's really where you want to be. Yeah. The other aspect... Um, which I talk a lot in the book has to do with this idea, which I try to put together called the sexual self. That is to say, we have a sexual self. For most of us, it's, it's an infantile part of ourself. doesn't have the maturity or the frustration tolerance that the rest of our self has. And one of the things that can happen um, in sexual abuse of, of any kind is a person doesn't really have a full sense that they're entitled to have a sexual self. So I hear from many people, I'm sure you've heard this from, from people that you've seen, that they feel that sex is something that you do for another person. It's, another, it's designed to take care of the other person's needs. And uh, it's really kind of an epiphany for a person when they say, wait, wait a minute, this is actually supposed to be for me. Once you cross that threshold, 
then it becomes a lot clearer. Because if you're in the bedroom and you're not feeling anything, you might as well just say, you know, this is not doing anything for me. Um, let's go back in the living room and let's just sit down because that was doing something for me and I was really enjoying it. Right. So you say that you bring it step by step into the bedroom and you need patience and you need time. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of patience. I mean, that's the key with trauma work, as you know. It just, you know, it, it proceeds at its own pace. And uh, the person decides uh, when they feel like uh, doing the next thing that they might feel like doing. Um, and if you put too much goals in, it just destroys the whole thing because the sexual self doesn't understand goals. Whether the goal is to be able to have an orgasm in the bedroom or to have an orgasm at all or to have an orgasm without thinking of something kinky or to have an orgasm um, without, uh, you know, uh, having to use a vibrator or whatever it is. You know, any goal you put on the sexual self uh, is going to be a problem. Right. And so from what I'm hearing from you, and uh, it's also when I look at my life, I know that it's a, of a vital importance is to have a partner that knows. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Um, the partner is key. Yeah. The partner really is key. Yeah. Um, and I always feel that the main thing with a partner, aside from them being reliable and reassuring and real, you know, uh, I call those the three R's, um, is that their sexual needs be genuinely satisfied by you as you are. So um, if you can only do it in the living room, uh, sitting up, they just, they still getting something out of the experience. You don't want the partner to be sacrificing. Um, you want the partner to honestly feel, you know what, I'm getting those good feelings. I'm experiencing that validating sense of arousal when I'm with you. And that's good. I don't, I don't, I don't need to do any more than you need to do right now. So obviously there's some partners for whom that just won't be true. And the partner will be saying, no, this is just really too frustrating for me. In which case, fine. Okay, this is not, not a good partner for that. One of the things that I talk about in my book, though, is that people tend to get very binary when they're talking about sexual negotiations. Are we going to have sex or not? Are we going to have sex or not? As if this is like this all or none thing. And uh, in my book, I have uh, kind of recipes for things you can do sexually that don't necessarily involve having sex. Um, the easiest one is what I call simmering, which is you have your clothes on, you're standing up, and you may be kissing each other goodbye. And you take an extra two minutes to hold each other, inhale each other's scent, breathe together, mold together, grab, feel excited, and then go. Look deeply at each other's eyes and say, I'll see you tonight. Um, and that's a simmer. And that's a great thing because you got sexually excited for, you know, a minute or two. Maybe you got a little sexually excited, maybe a lot, doesn't really matter. You got whatever. And you had a quality experience. So that every time you get excited doesn't mean you had to have sex. You can get excited all day long and not have sex. Is that making sense? Yes, I'm happy that you talk about the, the full spectrum of the sexual experience, which is uh, so much more than just uh, the meeting of the genitals or penetration. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or, or, even, or even having sex. 
Um, the, uh, um, what was I going to say? The one thing that I find with a lot of women that they get confused about is they're worried that if they say simmer, as we're talking about, that their male partners, if they're heterosexual, are going to think they're being teased. Um, because, uh, uh, you know, women get taught early, usually, you don't want to tease a guy, and that that's not a nice thing to do. And very often, and I, I see this with women, I see this with uh, women I know who are therapists, I see this with, even with women I know who are sex therapists. They say, well, what, what happens if he gets an erection? And I always say, well, that's good. We're guys, we like getting erections. It makes us feel good. And they go, well, doesn't he need to have an orgasm? And I go, no, no, he can have an orgasm anytime he wants. This is not necessary. Well, you mean if he gets an erection and he doesn't have an orgasm, that's okay? I go, yeah, yeah, go home. Ask your husband. If you get an erection and you don't have an orgasm, is that okay? And they all come back and, you know, I never knew. I always thought when he got an erection, and man, we had to have sex. So I've been always wearing these schlubby clothes to bed, from thinking that I didn't want to tempt him or get him excited. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to deliver sex. Now I realize I can dress up to go to bed. I can wear something sexy. I can feel sexy. And it doesn't mean we have to have sex. We could just enjoy the erotic moment together. We could just simmer. We could just simmer and then fall asleep. It's fine. We could have sex some other time. Is that making sense? Yes, it does make sense. And yet there's that major difference between uh, being a male and a female and how our sexual uh, energy flows. And so for men... Yes and no. Know, yes and know. no. Sometimes men, uh, sometimes men can flow too. Um, they don't always have to be just on a one-lane highway. Um, and you can teach men that. You can teach men that it can come and go. You know, we can get excited right now. You don't have to get set. You don't have to have an orgasm. And we can have to do something later on. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Or maybe I cut you off. What did you mean about how their energy flows? What I mean is that men get turned on uh, quickly. They like fire. So they feel the energy right in their genitals. They're ready to go. Whereas women is more like water. They need to boil. They need time. Once huh? they ball, they're good to go. But yeah, yeah. You know, they take, okay, that's they take, a good way of putting it. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. I think of it a little different. Um, I think that uh, men can be like fire. Um, you know, I, I, the male sexual impulse is usually not as driven by context as a woman's. Um, I hear women talking in sex therapy conferences about the context within which sexuality happens, the relationship, the understanding, the anticipation. I'm anticipating it. I'm preparing. What am I going to wear? Where are we going to be? What are we going to have beforehand to eat? You know, am I going to have a glass of wine? And the whole, it all contributes to the whole pleasure of the thing. What kind of perfume am I going to wear? Um, so all the context is extremely important. For men, that tends not to be the case. Um, for men, you know, partner takes off her top. That's about it. You know, that's for, for or if you're, or if you're a gay, a guy drops his pants, you know, it's, it's about it. Um, so in that respect, it is different. Um, however, I think both people, uh, really do crave to be enjoyed by the other one. A man wants to be with a woman who he thinks and he feels is really enjoying him. 
and uh, a woman wants to be with a man or a woman if she's uh, homosexual um, who feels that is really enjoying. And uh, that's just so profound, I think. And it goes really back to infancy. You know, I talk about in my book, like a mother with their baby's feet. You know, baby's feet tend to be these little pudgy little things and they don't really have arches yet. So they're just really cute. And you want to like eat them up. And so a mother just enjoying her baby's feet and toes, she's not doing it to give the baby pleasure. She's doing it for her own pleasure. But the baby experiences in some nonverbal way that somebody is grateful that they're there and enjoy them. We all want to be enjoyed. So in that respect, we're very, very similar. And a lot of guys, yeah, they get fire and everything, but they can feel very deprived if they don't really feel that their partner is enjoying them. But I like the idea of fire and water. I'm going to use that. <laughs> and uh, so you wrote a whole book about uh, a ridiculously great sex in long-lasting relationships. Yes. And, you know, long-lasting is a key word here because... It's the holy grail. It's the holy grail therapy, how to keep it going in a long-lasting relationship. Right. So can you share with us some takeaways from from that, some highlights? Okay, absolutely. Um, Here's the big picture. Big picture is that when you're first getting going as a sexual couple, there's an automatic, it automatically gets triggered that you get into this aroused state. When you become a committed sexual couple, after a few years, it doesn't automatically get triggered. Um, so what you have to do is you have to take care of creating the conditions under which you're going to experience it. And for most people, that doesn't happen mutually. It happens in parallel. So the suggestion that I make to couples is what I call the two-step, which is you make a date to get together and maybe you'll have sex, but it's not a sex date. You're making a date to take off your clothes, get in bed together and do absolutely nothing at all. So you're just going to lie there, get back into your body, experience your body, breathe. You may not even look at each other. You may be side by side. And it's essentially a mindfulness practice, which all sex therapists, sex therapy practices since the 1960s always have been. And so you're attuning up to the present moment with a minimum sense of judgment and just detaching from whatever thoughts are claiming your attention or whatever emotions are claiming your attention. And only then do you turn to your partner. And at that point, your channel is open. At the beginning of a relationship, your channel is automatically open. Later on, you just kind of have to open it up. So that's the first idea. The second idea has to do with this idea of how can you cultivate desire in a long-lasting relationship. And I'm going to be a little maverick here and say you probably can't. It's just not the same in a long-lasting relationship. There's all sorts of tricks that people say about how to cultivate desire, you know, cultivate mystery, uh, maybe go someplace where you've never been before, maybe... uh, go to a bar and pretend you don't know each other and one will pick each other up or like do a little dress up or a toy or whatever like that. And I go, oh, come on. You know, it's just like, it's, uh, it's like novelty. And yeah, yeah, novelty is okay, but novelty gets old very, very fast. You know, in this country, Fifty Shades of Grey got a lot of American women very excited for two weeks. And then everything went back to normal. You know, it's like trying to keep your sexual self happy 
like keeping a child happy by giving it new toys all the time. It just eventually, you just like, they all end up in the corner and the child's still bored and you're exhausted. So instead, you say, cut all the noise. We're not trying to cultivate desire at all. Okay? We're trying to cultivate inspiration. And the way to cultivate inspiration is by quieting everything way down. So it's really the opposite. Um, it's a uh, more of a, uh, I would say, less bohemian way of approaching the subject. It's a little bit more of a, let's just settle down here. Let's not go chasing after novelty and driving ourselves crazy. To me, the chasing after novelty is a forcing. You never want to force the sexual self because remember, it's a small child. You don't want to run around taking it to the zoo and taking it to the circus and buying it lots of toys and stuffing it with cotton candy. It's just going to get sick and throw up and you're going to be exhausted. So instead, what you really want to do is quiet it way down and just get a good rhythm with it. Say it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. It's all right that you don't necessarily feel that much desire because um, sex in a long-term relationship is often not fueled by desire. Um, it often works the other way. You have good sex, and then you get some desire as comes about as a result of that. So it kind of works backwards. Um, and uh, that would be my other answer uh, to that. Um, is that making sense so far? Yes, I have been in a long-term relationship myself, uh, 22 years. So ah, I... 28. <laughs> so we're both in the same range. <laughs> So I, I can relate totally to what you say. There's a different quality that arises in a long-term relationship. Sure. Not sure. That, it's not that uh, chemical reaction. It's not that right. uh, passionate desire. But there is that um, surrender to, yes. to somebody you saw, you know, you love deeply and you know deeply and you have been through a long life together, and there's a different quality there. So It's a different quality. I, I like to say, you know, people, people always ask me about this. They go, okay, well, wait, 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 what exactly do you mean? Like, all right, if you don't have a chore, if you don't have desire in the same way, like, does it mean like it's like a chore? And I go, no, 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 never a chore. There's something in the middle there between desire and a chore. Um, and I don't know any other word for it except a religious word. Um, which gets me in a lot of trouble in the sex therapy community. Um, but the word that I use is sanctification. It's a sanctification. It's that this is a special thing between us. Um, and I use all the things that religions use if they want to sanctify something. They use body. They use emotion. They use scent. You know, scent is very, very powerful with sex. And a good religion will use scent as well. Um, they use taste. And so those are all ways of anchoring emotion and the body together in order to sanctify the moment with this particular person. So that would be my best answer. Um, I get a lot of heat from that in this country because uh, people tend to be uh, kind of wary of uh, religious ideas, but uh, it's the only one I've been able to find. I also think it, it, it works as an analogy because most religious people find that they lose desire as well. They can be inspired religiously or spiritually and then they get to a point where they're not inspired. And what do you do then? Well, the idea is well, you quiet yourself way down and you open yourself to inspiration wherever it might come from. And, you know, you just say, okay, I'm open to it. Just uh, <laughs> where's it going to come from next? And you see. Right. I would definitely add music to your list, right? Oh, that's a beautiful thing, yeah. 
to um, have all the senses. Music is this funky thing because it's got, it, it, it kind of has order and it has chaos. You know, there's a philosopher in Canada, Jordan Peterson, who talks about this a lot. Um, where it, music is like order making its way through chaos. It has a beat and then the beat gets interrupted and so forth. So it's very, very powerful that way. Because, you know, we live at the, the borderland between order and chaos all the time. Right. So... Uh, we are heading towards the end of our time. And okay. then there was one technique I didn't get a chance to talk to you about. Please do. It's, it, what, can I, or am I interrupting you? No, I was about to ask you for your biggest takeaway. So okay, they, I don't know how big it is. Um, but I, the one other technique, which I would say is a follow-up to the simmering, is um, what I call lazy sex. Uh, a lot of people get this idea that sex has to be mutual. And you see a lot of arguments where uh, a couple says, I want to have sex. I don't want to have sex. I want to have sex twice a week. I want to have sex once a week. I go, this is such a stupid argument. What is it you really want? Well, you know, I want to have an orgasm. Okay, well, if you want to have an orgasm, why don't you just give yourself an orgasm? Well, you mean like go in the bathroom and masturbate? No, no, you just be in the bed with your partner. The two of you are holding each other and making out and she stroking your chest and lying back and just give yourself an orgasm. You mean I can do that? Yeah, absolutely. Will, will she like it? I don't know, but it should probably be relieved. She doesn't have to, you know, have intercourse and get up and pee afterwards or anything, you know. Um, and she's probably relieved. She doesn't have to worry about whether she's giving you the right kind of stimulation because, you know, it's this weird thing. After you get married or in a couple, you know, you, you lose the, the, the right to touch your own genitals in bed when you're with your partner. It's crazy. So I would say the, the main takeaway is that if one of you feels frustrated, this is very important with trauma survivors. Let's say you want to do something and you're not ready to get involved in, at the next stage of erotic activity and your partner feels frustrated, wants to have an orgasm, you say, fine, have an orgasm. It's fine. I'll just keep you company. Um, it's a lot better than having to, you know, go out to the bathroom where it's cold and lonely. You know, let's keep each other company. It's fine. Um, I, does that make sense? Do you think that that's something that... Uh, uh, might be useful to some of the people listening or not? I think it's, a, it's such an important tip to everyone because that gives us the, the right to satisfy our sexual needs without uh, perhaps uh, turning into pornography yeah. uh, and bringing it into the relationship, into that safe container. Yeah. Um, and it's still a mutual experience. And the in, in a way it is. I would say it is and it isn't. Yeah. I would say it isn't, isn't. It is a selfishly connected experience. Right. right. Just like a baby at the breast is selfishly connected. Um, because towards the moment of orgasm, are we really mutual? Yes and no. Maybe some more than others. But I would say we're selfishly connected. And that's, that's really where the passion is. But a lot of people who have been traumatized they may, not, may not be ready for that. They may not be prepared for that. But if their partner wants to have an orgasm, it's fine. They can allow themselves, to, the partner, to be selfishly connected to them and say, that's okay. Um, obviously, you know, if you get triggered by that, then that's a whole other story. Um, then you probably may need an expert to help the two of you sort it out. Right. But otherwise, um, and uh, uh, the other thing which I think about a lot is a somatic body work. Um, there was an article in the paper this morning about women who had been sexually abused uh, or, or uh, uh, violated taking uh, self-defense classes. Um, and they said, is this a good idea? And I thought, well, it's a wonderful idea if it gets you into your body. 
and if it makes you feel active in your body, because you know, uh, there's a uh, a guy, uh, Peter Levine, here in the United States. You know yes. his work. Yes, I do familiar with his work. Yes, where he says, you know, that's you know, even zebras out in the wild. Yes. They don't get traumatized every time we get chased by a lion. They just shake it off, you know. So there is something about being in the body and just moving. And I thought to myself, somebody's going to do one of those classes and just be able to move. It's a wonderful thing. Right. This is exactly my experience in my own healing journey because I've been working on it for 20 years on my own journey and with other women. And what I found is that we hold the trauma in the body and totally. release it is from the body. And the best way to release it is in a safe relationship container because we get hurt in relationship and we can heal in relationship. So yeah. even do it with the partner. That's why it's so important to communicate and, and get that deep intimacy going because I spent times in my lovemaking when I was crying or I was uncontrollably laughing or I was shaking and moving and my partner was just, there to hold space for me with yeah. no judgments, with no... Yeah, and whatever your body needs to do. Exactly. And I think yeah. every That's time... That's that that, you had somebody like that. Yeah. And I think that every time that that happened, it deepened our intimacy as well as... Oh, my uh, God, yeah. ...propelled me to, to my next stage of... Uh, Just to be given the, the permission that you can be okay with where you are and whatever your body needs to do. Right. Wow. Well, it's a privilege yeah. talking to you. It is such a privilege talking to you too. I'm so happy you. that you came on to this summit and I'm sure that uh, our audience will have a lot of insights to digest from this call. So blessings on your journey and thank you for the amazing work that you're doing in the world. Thank you and blessings on your journey too, Nunaisi. And uh, really nice to meet you. <laughs> thank take you care. and take care and ciao everybody until the next time. Thank you.